Well, we decided that uh, 18 years was long enough for using a music stand. And, uh, here's what I love is four guys from the body built this. And so, yeah, yeah. So I, I love it. It's a good thing. Good thing. Maybe the preaching will get better. You, you can hope. That's what they said. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you uh, noticed this or not, but this last week there was a, a rather significant um, announcement out of um, Harvard. Uh, researchers there, scientists there, have um, discovered successfully how to reverse aging in mice. <laughs> now, this is actually some pretty uh, impressive genetic work that they're doing. Uh, researchers have found a way to reset aging cells and make them think that they're young again. I, I, it's incredible. They, they have actually reversed vision loss in mice. And they believe that they can do the same uh, for brains, uh, which could be a, a cure for things like dementia. I'm, I'm super glad that uh, there are bright minds working to find help for us on, on the things that ail us. I'm not entirely sure this is a good idea. I mean, th they have just created immortal rodents. <laughs> I, someone did not think this all the way through. And, and I, I know, I, I'm, I'm not joking. They are using a virus to deliver the serum to the cells to make them forever young. I mean, nothing could go wrong with that, right? It's like the script for a really bad, low-budget, dystopian, end-of-the-world movie. A movie I don't want to live through. I'm betting even if the mice don't eventually take over the world... Harvard actually does figure out how to use this to um, keep us younger for a longer time. I'm betting that an 80-year-old me is still pretty grumpy most of the time. I mean, even if I've got the mind and the eyesight of a 20-year-old, it'll just give me more to complain about, I'm sure. And I say that because I know myself. Hey, here I am as a follower of Christ. Uh, someone who has been forgiven and cleansed and redeemed and sanctified. Uh, someone, someone who has, who has been loved deeply by God and who has been given the promise of heaven. And yet somehow, uh, far too often, I still find a way to be grumpy and gloomy. I have every reason to be joyful. I have every reason to be excited for what is coming, to have a positive outlook, a, a resilient mindset. And yet, I find myself irritated at the smallest things, uh, oppressed by those things that are truly difficult and, and often overwhelmed by the volume and the intensity of it all. You know, in, in times like this, in the days in which you and I find ourselves living, a time when evil is celebrated and goodness 
is persecuted. When, when good is called evil and evil is called good, as the prophet said. In times when there is more pain and sorrow than sometimes you think that you can bear, in times like this, you and I, we've got to remember that we've got a hope. We, we've got a hope that we can rely on, we can depend on. So grab your Bibles. This is what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, grab your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 22. There at the very end of that chapter, uh, verses 63 through 71. Uh, we're going to take a look at the hope that we have in Christ. You know the, you know the routine. Will you do this? Will you stand? I'll read the passage. You can follow along. Beginning in verse 63 of chapter 22, Luke writes, The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, Prophesy, who was it that hit you? They were saying many other blasphemous things to him. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth? Let's pray. Father, we depend on you meeting us here in this time. Lord, using it to speak to our hearts, Lord, to shape our thinking, to change us. Lord, we look to you. We ask that you would teach us this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I'm betting that as we read this morning's passage, it, it didn't strike you as being, well particularly encouraging. After all, it is filled with absolutely the ugliest bit of sin, uh, the worst of the brokenness of this world. And yet, I would contend that it is encouraging because it is in times like we live that we've got to know that our hope is a hope that can truly help us in the midst of difficult times, that it's a hope that has been thoroughly tested. Theoretical hope, fanciful hope, imaginary hope, that's worse than no hope at all because you put your, your trust in it, but then it fails you. It can't withstand the hard things, the painful things that, uh, that have become just so, so terribly common in our lives these days. You and I, we need a hope that is tested and that is tried 
uh, that can endure, that can overcome. We need a hope that can carry us not only through the trials of this life, but a hope that can carry us into eternity. And friends, that is exactly what we find here. Where we pick up this week, right where we left off last time, if you remember, it's Passover. And so Jesus and his disciples have come there to Jerusalem to celebrate. And while they're there, Jesus is arrested by the jealous religious leaders. He, he is abandoned by his disciples. And now he is being held and questioned at the home of the high priest. We begin in, in verse 63. Look there. It says the men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. And that's exactly what he had predicted would happen, wasn't it? He had told his disciples over and over again that he would, he would bear these humiliations, even to the point that they blindfolded him and then they began demanding, prophesy, which one of, the, which one of us was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. You know, I, I think it's just true that anyone who has ever had power has been tempted to abuse that power. And these men, likely thinking that they would never be held responsible for their actions, they behave viciously. They mock and they beat one whom they think is defenseless. If only they knew. If only they knew his power and his strength. If only they knew the passion and the violence that the myriad angels of heaven would have very willingly poured out upon them in that moment had they been allowed. If only they knew that they would be held accountable. That one day they would be the ones who would stand defenseless before the very one whom they were brutally abusing. If they had only known, I think they would have chosen very differently. But they were, as too often we are, unthinking, unconscious to the reality of living in the moment, putting off any thoughts of the reality of judgment. You know, one of the most deceptive lies that we ever tell ourselves is this. <laughs> well, I gotta, guess I got away with that one. <laughs> a few years back, Luann and I borrowed a car from her parents for a long trip. And toward the end of the journey, we were in downtown Seattle when I, I honestly, I just don't have a clue what I was thinking. I just absolutely blew right through the reddest light that has ever been red. I remember arriving at the other side of the intersection just being so thankful that I hadn't caused an accident, I hadn't killed any pedestrians, I didn't even get a ticket. Four months later, We're opening Christmas presents at, at Lou's parents' house. And Lou's sweet mother hands me an envelope, and smiling, says to me, and here's your Christmas present. 
It was a beautiful red light camera picture of me driving their car barreling through Fifth and Marion in downtown Seattle. <laughs> what the men in verse 63 needed to realize, what you and I need to remember, and what those who today mock God need to know is that even though it may seem at the moment that there are no consequences, no repercussions for our actions, for our deceptions, for our lashing out, yet there will be. There will be. The day will come when all wrongs will be set right. Metaphorically speaking, one day we will each be handed an envelope with irrefutable evidence of our moral failure, of our lack of love, and the penalty associated with our undeniable guilt will be eternal separation from God himself, the source of all life and all goodness. It will be eternal isolation from God and from everything and everyone that he has created. It will be knowing for eternity that we were offered heaven, but that we stubbornly chose hell instead. As Romans 6.23 puts it, the wages of sin is death. You know what? That Christmas, when my mother-in-law gave me that envelope, there, right next to that picture of me sailing through the intersection, it was boldly written, paid in full. I've got another envelope coming. And it's not just another traffic ticket. When I come to the end of my days and I stand before the Lord, every action, every failure to act, every thought, every, every careless word will be measured against the, the full and perfect standard of God's holiness. And I will not measure up. None of us will. But on that day, too, my envelope will be boldly marked, paid in full by Jesus. Amen. I, I won't be welcomed into eternity because I've been good, because I haven't. None of us could ever be that good. Our only hope and the only way that the you or I will be welcomed into heaven is, is if we will surrender ourselves to Jesus, if we will, we will come under his authority in his covering, if we will receive from him his forgiveness, his cleansing, his transformation, then, then, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you will take refuge in Jesus, you will be redeemed. As the second half of Romans 6.23 says, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Understand this. Even those men who, who beat and mocked Jesus, even them, if they would surrender themselves to the one whom they abused, he would forgive them. He would forgive them and cleanse them and transform them. If you have not surrendered yourself, you're living to Jesus, do it today. Do it today. Don't wait another day. We aren't promised tomorrow. You know, I, I say something like that, and it, and it almost feels like a, a manipulation to put pressure on you. And yet this is reality. You know, this last week, the strongest human being I know a guy graduated from high school with. He had an infected finger. He's dead today. He had an infected finger. And within 24 hours of being admitted to the hospital, life support had failed and he had passed. We have no guarantees of tomorrow. <clears throat> Give yourself to Jesus. Let's move on to verse 66. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, don't they sound nice, official, righteous there? These same men who, who allowed to take place what happened to Jesus through the night. They convened and brought him to stand before their Sanhedrin. Uh, the other gospels tell us that so far Jesus has been questioned by Annas. He was the high priest's father-in-law. Really, he was the power broker behind uh, the whole religious uh, system. A and he had stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, along with... Uh, as some of the other religious leaders, all of that that had taken place that night, that was all the unofficial questioning. It's here in verse 66 that with the convening of the Sanhedrin that the, the official trial begins. The Sanhedrin was the official court of the Jews. They had been granted limited authority by uh, by the Romans who found it easier to rule over the Jews as indirectly as possible, uh, being as ornery as they were. And so having tried different approaches at questioning Jesus through the course of the night, uh, they'd tried direct questioning, they'd brought false witnesses, they even tried to provoke a response from him with violence. Now they quickly go to the one thing that had worked well for them. Look at verse 67. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Just tell us. But he said to them, but he said to them, he did not answer the way that they expected him to. He said, if I do tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. He didn't deny it. 
It clearly did not deny it. But here, he also does not respond as directly as he had during the night. And Mark 14 tells us about that questioning in the middle of the night and how they had asked him if he was Messiah, the Son of God, and he had answered them, I am. I am. Of course, they had asked the question a little differently then. Matthew 26 tells us uh, that the high priest had said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, but here in the official trial, Luke records for us that at first, at first they only ask if he is the Messiah, a title that in that day had become popularly defined as being a leader who would lead the nation in rebellion against Rome. Jesus was much more than that. And so here Jesus answers cryptically about being the Messiah because first he wants to clarify for them what it means to be Messiah. And so he says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah, but you need to understand this. The Messiah is the son of God. He is not merely a rebel leader, but he is, is co-equal with God and will sit enthroned in heaven as God the Father's equal for all eternity. The religious leaders understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And notice there, verse 70, and they all asked. Hearing what Jesus was saying about himself, they all cry out, are you saying then that you are the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Now to our ears, this answer is still more subtle than we would have expected. But the religious leaders, they hear what Jesus is saying quite clearly. Jesus tells him, yes, I am the Messiah, and the Messiah is the Son of God who will sit enthroned in heaven as the Father's equal. And hearing that response in verse 71, they close the trial. They have reached their verdict. He says, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it ourselves from his mouth. What is it that they have heard? They have heard Jesus clearly claim that he is God Almighty in human flesh. And that was enough for them. That was enough for them because they began with the assumption that Jesus was nothing more than a mere man. And if that were true, then his answer would be blasphemy. But what they failed to do was to consider the veracity, the truth of what it is that Jesus was saying, that he actually was God Almighty in human flesh. They had arrested him, questioned him, and abused him, and now they judged him. This group of mere men exercised absolute power and authority over God in human flesh. And he let them. He let them. Jesus willingly allowed all of this because by doing so, 
He was taking upon himself the punishment, the guilt, the shame, the consequence of all our sin. First Peter explains it this way. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, speaking of the cross, so that you and I, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds. You've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That brokenness between you and God, that has been healed by what Christ did upon the cross. Though we had wandered far away, he has now opened the way for us to return to God. He took our sin and our guilt so that we might live with him forever. He took our sin and our guilt so that we might live out the rest of this life changed. First, he he took our sin and guilt so that we might live forever. Understand this. Understand this. This hope that we have in Jesus, uh, this hope that we have, it isn't just for this life. It's a hope that can take us beyond this life and into eternity. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. He says there that if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, he says, then we should be pitied more than anyone. And what Paul is talking about is that, is that our hope isn't in this life. It isn't based in this life. It isn't, hey, come to Jesus and your life will be nothing but sunshine and lollipops from here on out. No, 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 no. It, it, Our hope isn't for a better life now. It certainly is not for an easier life now. Jesus dispels that myth right up front. He says so plainly to his followers, you will have suffering in this life. Our hope in Christ certainly is a comfort amidst the difficulties that we experience. Those difficulties that often come so relentlessly, sometimes with such a great severity. It's in Christ that we find peace amidst the storm. It's in Christ that we find perspective and direction when we are overwhelmed by life. It's in Christ that we find strength to keep going when honestly, we just want to quit. It's in Christ that we are tangibly encouraged in our hearts. Our comfort isn't that everything will work out how we want it to in this life. Have you found that to be true? Our hope is that in the end, in eternity, God has promised that he will set all things right. And until that day, he will sustain us. He will comfort us. He will accompany us. He's promised us that I I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I'm coming to you. 
Our hope is for that day when we join him in eternity. Secondly, he took our sin and guilt so that we might live out the rest of this life changed. Our hope is that he is working in us to change us, that he is empowering us and enabling us to to live differently than we have lived so far. So what does that mean? What does that look like for, for you and I living in the day in which we live, living amidst this dumpster fire of a world? What does it look like to, to live changed amidst such a mess that is getting messier day after day? How are you and I supposed to be responding to a world that, that thinks we ought to be celebrating sin, uh, to a world that is outraged at the thought of it not being legal to kill babies, uh, a world that is, is bent on getting everyone angry and filled with hate for everyone else? Well, to start, We've got to remember that we've got hope. <laughs> we've got to remember that we've got a hope. But our hope, our hope isn't that, that this world is just going to eventually start getting better on its own. It, it's not. Nor is our hope based on, on us thinking that our efforts are necessarily going to turn things around. You know, things might get better if we work hard. They also might not. Our hope is based on this. We know that the day will come, and I believe that it's coming soon, when Christ will return, and he will reign openly upon this earth. Evil will be judged. Innocence will be preserved. And all our hurts will be wiped away. question is, what do we do till then? <laughs> what do we do till, till then? Well, here are a few of the things that I think scripture clearly points us to. We're to suffer well. We're to engage in his work. We're to represent Jesus. We're to fight right. So first, uh, we're to suffer well. We're to suffer like Jesus did. Uh, we're to suffer like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5, uh, where we have this, this attitude, this understanding that, that yes, we're suffering, yes, things are difficult, but, but we can trust God enough to know that he will take even the things that we are experiencing now to work them to good in our lives. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. He says, we boast in our afflictions. Now that, that's a weird start, isn't it? Kind of makes me nervous when Paul talks like that. <laughs> we boast in our afflictions because, here's why, we know that affliction produces endurance. That endurance produces proven character. 
And proven character produces hope. Now stop for a second and understand this. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Unless God is working in the midst of it. Unless God is doing something to work affliction into endurance. To work endurance into proven character. To work proven character into hope. And he says, and this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What Paul is saying here is that you and I have hope because we know that God loves us and we know and we can trust him enough to believe that he will take our suffering and he will turn it into endurance and endurance into proven character and proven character into hope because he loves us. Secondly, until he comes, we need to engage in working for the good. In Luke chapter 19, through a parable, Jesus tells his disciples that he wants them to engage in business until he comes back. I like the way some of the older translations put it. He says, occupy until I return. Occupy until I return. Be here with a purpose, Jesus says. Guys, we are not to just sit around trying to entertain ourselves. We're to be busy about his work. And part of that work is what the Lord describes in Jeremiah 29. And there the Lord says to those who have been taken captive to Babylon, understand this. He isn't saying this to people sitting under their trees in, in, in Israel. He's saying this to those who have been taken captive, taken prisoner to Babylon. He says, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. You ever look around at this dumpster fire of a world and wish you'd been born in another time? You ever look around and think, oh, man, why are we here? You're here because God has destined you for this place and for this time. He says to those who were taken captives to Babylon, I deported you here. I put you in this place. And so what are they to do? They are to pray to the Lord on behalf of the place where he has put them. For when it thrives, you will thrive. So you and I, we need to work for the good of this place, this place where he's put us. Start praying for the good of where God has planted you. Don't post about it on Facebook. Don't think that complaining about what's wrong is helping anyone. But work. Begin to engage to make this community better. And remember, Remember, thirdly, wherever we go, whatever we do, 
We are representing Jesus at all times. And really, this passage should be our mission statement. Some of you are looking for your next tattoo. Here it is. You're going to need a significant amount of real estate for this. Um, but I, I'd say go for it. Um, yeah, please have it, have it put on so that you can read it because you're the one who needs to read it regularly. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Why are you here? What is your purpose? What are you to be about? We are ambassadors, representatives of the Savior. Listen to what Paul says God is doing. God is making his appeal through us, through us. He is making his appeal to this lost and perishing world through you and through me. And so Paul says, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the main assignment he has given us. We are to represent him here. And we will need to represent him through proclamation. Okay? Please, I do not buy the nonsense of, hey, tell the world about Jesus, and if you have to, use words. <laughs> You're going to have to use words. If you're going to share the gospel with someone, you're going to have to use words. If you're going to tell the world about Jesus, you will always have to use words. That isn't just my thing. That's what Romans 10 tells us. Listen to what Paul writes there. He says, how then can they call on him who they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? That's not me, that's you. That's not me, that's you. How can they hear if you don't tell them? How can they preach if they're not sent? Guess what? You're being sent. You're being told to go and to represent him and to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know it. Understand, you, your words will only carry as much power as your living provides them with. You must not only proclaim the gospel, you must demonstrate it as well. That's true, that's biblical. When Paul talks about this with the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2. There he... He makes a comparison that's probably awkward for us guys, but he says, although we could have been a burden to you as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. He is not talking about a medical professional here. He's talking about a woman breastfeeding her own child. What Paul is saying is we were so aware that we were pouring out our lives to strengthen you. We were giving of our own lives to, to nourish you and to sustain you in your walk with Christ. We loved you so much that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become dear to us. 
We need to proclaim the gospel, but we also need to pour out our lives to sustain those to whom we are preaching. Finally, we need to fight right. We need to fight right. Our battle is not against people. It is not against people. Understand this. Remember what Ephesians chapter 6 tells us. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. When you find yourself striving against flesh and blood, fighting against flesh and blood, the enemy has won. You, 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 are, you are off target. Our struggle, Paul says, is against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against the evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The battle that we fight must be a battle of prayer. We got to fight right. We need to begin doing battle in prayer. So how do we live in a dumpster fire of a world while we wait for our great hope, while we wait for the return of our Savior, while we wait until the day that either we go to him or he brings us to him? Well, first, we've got to remember that we have hope. We've got to remember that the day will come and it is coming soon when our Jesus, our King, will come. And he will set all wrongs to right. Evil will be judged. Innocence will be preserved. And all our hurts will be wiped away. You stand with me while I pray. God, this this world is an overwhelming mess. In just our little circles. Poor Lord, as we look at the, the world as a whole, it's overwhelming. So Lord, I ask that this morning you would remind us of our hope in you. that our eyes would long for the return of the Savior, and that our hearts would trust him. And that, Lord, filled with your spirit, taught by your word, we would go out and engage in this place until you come, that we would represent you well, we would seek the good of this place. 
Lord, that we would engage in the spiritual battle and love the people. God, I pray that we would go out from here encouraged, strengthened, and equipped to do the things that you've called us to do. Work that in us, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.